For a scriptural reading this morning, I'll be reading Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, the right, at the right time Jesus died for the ungodly. For one who scarcely died for a righteous for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a <clears throat> good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his, showed his, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received recon reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so sin spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was, to, was a type of the one who was to come. For the free gift is not the trespass, <clears throat> not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but when the sin increased, the grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord is risen. Amen. Welcome to Calvary, to each one of you, and especially to the visitors. For message this morning, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1. 
The title of our message is True Love. And the events of this weekend have reminded us of the love of God that he expressed to us through the incarnation of his son, the death on the cross, and the glorious resurrection. And without the resurrection, there would be no church. But because there has been the resurrection, we have the church, the ongoing ministry of Christ to mankind through the Holy Spirit. And the apostles spent their lives spreading the message of Christ's love and truth to the world. So this morning, we're going to fast forward about 30 years from the resurrection and look at this letter to Timothy that Paul wrote. But just for a little bit of background, we know who Paul was, and we're familiar with with the traveling and and writing that he did. Um, I'm not exactly sure what kind of leader that we would um, see Paul being today if if he were here with us. He might be a pastor at, at one of the big mega churches, or he might be one of those itinerant preachers that just kind of roams the entire country and, and preaches everywhere. Um, or maybe he would spend all his time in Africa or China or one of the unreached territories to, to spread the gospel. Those are all good things to be, and, but regardless of, of where the Apostle Paul would be, I, I think we could count on his message being the same. Unfortunately, we know what his message is, is because it's recorded for us here today. So when we have questions about how a church should be run or, or how, um, how leadership should be structured, it makes sense to look at one of Christianity's most prominent missionaries and teachers to see what he had to say about it. And so that's what we'll be looking at in, in the sermon today. And for a bit of further background, we we know about the Apostle Paul, but let's review what we know about um, Timothy. He doesn't necessarily play any prominent roles in the early church, and there's no famous stories about him like there is about Paul or Peter. But Paul saw something special in Timothy, and he invited Timothy to participate with him on some of his missionary travels. So Timothy was from a city called Lystra, which is in the province of Galatia, and that's in modern-day Turkey. His father was a Gentile, not a Christian, and his mother and grandmother were both Jewish, and we're told that Timothy had been instructed in the scriptures from early childhood by his his mother and grandmother. Apparently there was no synagogue in that area, and and so his his instruction in the scripture depended on, on his mother and grandmother. But the Apostle Paul had, had traveled through that area on his first missionary journey, and that's probably when, when his mother and grandmother heard the gospel and were converted. And then Paul came back to Lystra on his second missionary journey, and that's when he heard a lot of good things about this man, Timothy. And so he invited him to go with him for the remainder of his missionary trip. And it was on this missionary trip that Paul had the dream one night where he received the call to go to Macedonia, And then while he was going to Macedonia, they cast out the evil spirit in the fortune-telling girl in Philippi, and then they were beaten and put into prison. And then that was the time that the earthquake at midnight opened the prison doors, and the jailer was ready to commit suicide, thinking the prisoners had escaped. But Paul stopped him, and the jailer and his family were converted. 
and then they went to Thessalonica, and many devout Greeks and leading women were converted, and that made the Jews jealous, so they set the city in an uproar and chased out Paul and Silas. And so they went to Berea next, and when they got to Berea, the um, people there received the word with eagerness, but the people from Thessalonica, where they had just been, got jealous and, and came and stirred up the people again. And, and so Paul had to escape once more. And this was just on his second missionary journey. Paul, Timothy also went with Paul on his third missionary journey and was frequently sent by Paul to, to check on the other churches as Paul's messenger. He went to Macedonia, Philippi, Corinth, and Thessalonica at Paul's request, and he was with Paul in prison when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. I hope you're keeping track of all this. There's a quiz at the end. So in other words, Timothy had a lot of experiences with Paul, and he was pretty familiar with Paul's teaching. He was not, shall we say, a new elder. This was not a letter to a new Christian or one to who, had, who had never heard the gospel message. Timothy had heard Paul countless times as he preached the good news in many different cities and to many different audiences. He had witnessed him being arrested and beaten and run out of town. And Timothy was actually in prison with Paul when Paul testified in Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, in Philippians 1.21. And they also had a close relationship. In Philippians 2.20 and 22, Paul says, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So that's Timothy. And it is thought that Paul went on a fourth missionary journey that wasn't specifically recorded in the book of Acts, um, but some of the other letters hint at it. And it was while he was on this journey that he wrote the letter to Timothy regarding the church in Ephesus. Like I said, it was probably about 30 years after the resurrection, sometime around 62 to 64 AD. So what is it that Paul would write to someone who he knows so well and who knows him so well? This letter is, is written to Timothy as a, as a young leader in the church, and Paul's vision was for the church to be ordered by God's principles both at an organizational level and at a relational level. And, and this letter speaks to, to some of both of those levels. The well-ordered church is one that holds truth, loves the one who is truth, and confronts and rejects any assault on truth. When truth is ignored or devalued, love is lost. True love cannot exist apart from truth. So you can loosely organize this book around both of these words, around truth and love. And I, I don't know if I'm the only one that, that struggles with this, but sometimes we, we tend to put truth and love on, on different ends of the spectrum. If someone is sinning, we, we just love them and accept them and, and, and don't really address the sin, and, and we think that's being loving. Or we can kind of be mean and, and shove the truth down their throats and, and not really think about how it makes them feel and, and in fact, do it in an unloving way. But, but it is the truth, and, and you know, we, we have a chapter and verse for it, and so we say we're, we're giving them the truth. 
and, and so there's sometimes this, this tension. We, we think, you know, you can either be truthful or you can be loving, but, but how, do we, how do we combine the two? Well, love does cover a multitude of sins, as 1 Peter 4, 8 teaches, but love does not ignore the truth. The truth must be spoken, but we are to speak the truth in love, as taught in Ephesians 4.15. And I always like the picture of, of Christ that we see in John chapter 1. Jesus, the incarnation of the Father, is full of grace and truth. Both aspects are fully and perfectly present in one person, and he is the model which can guide our understanding of grace and truth. So we will be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. The key verse in this chapter is verse 5. And it's kind of the, 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 um, the verse around, uh, around which the rest of, of the chapter is oriented. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So if you look for repeated words in this chapter, you kind of get a clue as to what his main point or emphasis is. He says in verse 3, charge certain persons, and then again in verse 5, the aim of our charge, and finally in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. And so what, what is the charge? We'll look at the charge, and we'll look at the results of this charge. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul's appeal to Timothy here is that the church would mature into a body that is characterized by love, a love that is the result of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. These things, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, are not developed overnight, but as they grow, our capacity to love also grows. And the growth and development of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, Paul argues, is based on truth. It is not based on made-up stories or family trees or arrogant teachers. It is not even based on following the law. The goal is love, and Paul outlines several hindrances to love in the first half of the chapter. So let's look at those. False doctrine hinders God's people from loving as they ought. And there's three specific ones that Paul addresses in verses 3 through 7. There are myths and endless genealogies, or false content, and arrogant ambitions, or a false heart. So we see Paul's opening statement after his introductory remarks is a warning against false teachers who teach myths and endless genealogies. To the result of, of focusing on, on these types of things is speculation or disputes or controversies, as some other uh, versions put it. And Paul instructs Timothy to forbid or rebuke those who teach these things. There's a few other places that, that Paul talks about these. And later in, in this book, in chapter 4, verse 7, he also says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then in 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the truth, from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. And then Peter also mentions myths in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So while the specifics of the myths are not detailed for us, and it's probably beside the point, it is apparent that myths are opposed to truth and not in an accidental way or because someone misunderstood some esoteric part of a complex theological doctrine. Myths are intentionally created to support a pre-existing dogma. There is no appreciation for what is true, only for what fits the presuppositions that are already held. And in the case of preaching the gospel, a message that is not true is, is devastating. And Paul's emphasis is that truth must guide Timothy, and it must guide the church, and it must continue to guide us today if we hope to avoid the devastation of a false gospel. 
Next, he talks about endless genealogies. And again, that could have several implications. It could be related to the myths as it related to a philosophy called Gnosticism, which I won't go into today. Um, and again, genealogies is, is addressed later by Paul in the letter to Titus. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And we know the Jews like to keep track of their family trees, kind of like some other cultural groups we know of. And it, it was important in some cases to establish you know, which tribes they belonged to and, and for purposes of, of priesthood and, and other things. But possibly they, they tried to establish some sort of superiority over another group or um, somehow to, to show that, that they were better than, than um, another person or had, had spiritual advantage with God. And the result was, was controversy, speculations, or disputes. And then finally, jumping down to, to verse 6, he warns against those who seek to be recognized for how well they teach the law. The, the problem is not that they teach the law, but first of all, that they don't understand it, and then that they make confident assertions about what it means. And the result of this is vain discussions and swerving from what is right. The idea of swerving is, is missing the mark. And generally, this has a, a negative connotation. The kind of classic excuse in a single vehicle accident is that something came out, it was a deer or a dog or a ghost or something, came out of nowhere, and, and you were trying to swerve to miss it, and, and, and you land in the ditch or in the tree or, or somewhere. Um, and, and that's kind of what happens with, with swerving is that the, the goal is not aligned with the means, and, and the results are catastrophic. But it's, it's kind of a tricky accusation to make that someone who knows the scripture well doesn't teach it as they ought. And Jesus also addressed this in his discussion with the Jews in John chapter 5. I'd like to turn to that and read just a few verses there. The Jews were persecuting Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath, because it violated their rules about not working on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus really gave a scathing rebuke to their criticism. So John 5, I'll read verses 37 to 47. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
So we see verse 39 and 40, kind of a sad picture. The, the Jews were very familiar with, with the scriptures and, and memorized vast portions of them, yet Jesus indicts them for missing the point. They failed to see Jesus in, in the scriptures, and they failed to see Jesus when he stood in front of them. How many people think that God must be pleased with them because they are working so hard or doing such noble tasks or sacrificing in such heroic measures, and yet God says they have missed the mark? The Jews were so blindly committed to their idol of performance that they did not see the Son of God right in front of their eyes. And Jesus' condemnation wasn't that they were ignorant or that they weren't trying hard enough. He says in verse 42, that the mark of their failure was that they did not have the love of God within them. And then in verse 45, he says that he's not making this up. He's, Moses also accuses them. In other words, the law that they had studied so diligently that pointed to Christ, they failed to recognize Jesus when he stood in front of them. Now back to our, our text, 1 Timothy 1. While he rebukes those who try to use the law for selfish reasons, he goes on to say that the law does, in fact, have value. And he goes into a discussion on that. He says it is good if one uses it lawfully. So let, let's review a little bit what he's saying here. We remember that the aim of his letter is to promote love. So how does the law help us to love? Why does he say it's good? Actually, the law does nothing to make us more loving. The law is actually made for those who are not loving, as we see in the list in, in verses 9 and 10. It is made for the bad people. So what does he mean when he says the law is good, but he also says it's made, it's not for the good people? The law is for the lawless and disobedient, and he details a, a whole list of people who are clearly lawbreakers. So if these people are breaking the law of God, how, how is the law doing them any good? It seems like they're the ones for whom the law is not working. And we don't have to look very far in our world to see brokenness around us as well. We can obviously look at dictators and terrorist organizations, and, uh, but we can come a little closer home and read the newspapers or hang out at Walmart, and we see there's a lot of brokenness in our own communities. But rather than, than making it all out there, we're looking a little closer home, we know there's brokenness in our churches, in our families. And if we're honest and, and look within ourselves, we know there's brokenness in our own hearts. We all fail to love as we ought. And some of us fail more spectacularly than others. We perhaps think that following the law more closely will enable us to be more loving. But what is it that we're supposed to do with the law, and how are we supposed to think about it? So let's look at Romans 7 for a, a few comments that Paul had on the law. Romans 7, I'll read verses 7 through 13. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had, if, 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might, show, might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So without the law, we do not have a knowledge of sin. And in fact, we might even think that we're pretty good people, which is what Paul was saying in verse 9. He thought he was alive, but when he read the commandment, he realized that he was in sin and that he was dead in sin. And so without the law, which is a standard which exists independent of our opinions or sentiments on the matter, without the law, the basis of morality becomes relative. And we can see the effects of moral relativism all over our country and in the ever-evolving legislation that seeks to define the boundaries of what is acceptable behavior. And while there are societal benefits of legislated bounds of morality, we miss the point if we think that banning gay marriage makes us a more Christian nation. How successful is Sharia law in promoting moral purity? Even if you legislate the action, you cannot legislate the heart. And when we have a standard for morality as defined by God himself, it does not take us long to see where we are breaking the standard. And outside of Christ, as Paul goes on to explain, we soon realize that we are spiritually dead and that we are unable to meet this standard. So what does the law do? It is basically a guide that takes us from thinking that we're pretty good people and it shows us where we have sinned and it shows us that we have more sin in our hearts than we will ever be able to overcome. And we go from being what we think is alive to being dead when we see the truth and we realize how dead we are. And then we are in a position to respond to our spiritual deadness. And trying to keep the law, trying harder to keep the law, will never work. And we have 2,000 years of, of Jewish history to prove that the law is insufficient. The goal is love, and the law proves that we cannot get there on our own. So let's get back to our text once more. And it seems like at first blush that this chapter jumps from, from one idea to the next, but he, he takes a few circuitous routes. But let's remember the, the, the aim is love. And he talks about the law how, and, and basically demonstrates that the law is, is inadequate to, to make us love. Um, so let's look at verses 12 through 17. And th this could be an entire sermon in itself, I suppose. 
it kind of seems like he's switching gears, but as we consider the previous discussion on the law, we, we see that he's also continuing the same train of thought. And verse 13 is really the, the link from the previous paragraph to this discussion. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He's placing himself in the list of sinners that he mentioned back in verses 9 and 10. And then he gives a solution to the dilemma of being the sinner who is unable to keep the law. He says, I received mercy, and the grace of God overflowed for him. In the King James Version, it says, the grace of God was exceeding abundant. So Paul's position here is, is to be instructive for us. It's to be the position of all believers, and it is the answer to the brokenness in us and around us. We realize we are sinners. We know that our salvation has nothing to do with our own merits or how well we are keeping the law. And then we maintain a posture of humility, a humility that is informed both by the extent of our sinfulness and the extent of God's grace. And by faith, we receive from God the love and grace that delivers us from sin and empowers us to live in his spirit. And then through faith and grace, we are able to love. So this chapter basically shows us two ways that people can choose to live. The negative way is based on false ideas and wrong motives, as we see in the first half. The center is the self. And the focus is visible success and self-gratification. The result is speculation, debate, and shipwreck. The positive way is based on an accurate understanding of our sinfulness, based on the truth of God that we see in the law, and a deliverance from our enslavement to sin based on the unmerited grace of God. And the result of this is humility and love, a love that is based on truth. Love that is based on anything less than truth will ultimately fail. Our foundation is Christ himself, who is the embodiment of truth, and it is through faith that we come to know Christ and that we come to know truth, and it is only from that foundation that we can begin to love as we ought. And truth is under assault at many levels in our world today. The recent Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was signed into law in Indiana ignited a huge firestorm in the media and social media because it was perceived as an insult to the LGBT community. And the prevailing rhetoric is that we, we for tolerance and love, and a position that states that someone else is morally wrong is considered morally wrong. And unless we agree on a standard of morality, it, it, there's no point in having the debate. The media and Hollywood have rejected truth as a standard, so it's no wonder they get upset when that standard is promoted or upheld. But as one Republican pollster commented, the way the young people think today is the direction the country will go. And guess who's shaping the thoughts and, and the ways that our young people are thinking today? But merely bashing the liberals does not make us more right. We can wag our heads and shake our fingers at them all day and smugly talk about our commitment to the moral high ground 
while still carrying in us a heart of pride. It is important to recognize who is opposed to God's truth, but we also must remember, as the Apostle Paul did, that we also are sinners. Love is not the same as tolerance, and it is possible to love while disagreeing. And to love truly, we must continually be guided by truth with our hearts continually reoriented to God, our conscience shaped and directed by the truth, and our faith resting in the person of truth. And we must be diligent in shaping our young people from the time they can talk all the way through adulthood. There's countless voices competing for their attention, and it will have an effect on them. Will the truth that they have learned in our homes and schools and church be firmly rooted in them in a way that they can reject the lies that they hear? And how can we teach it to them unless it is alive and real in our own hearts? This is not just an academic exercise. Truth has real effects in everybody's lives. When truth is our foundation, true love will be our expression. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, you have blessed us with an example of true love. Help us to remain committed to your truth and so to be shaped into the loving servants who can build your church and glorify your name. Amen.